Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I mentioned last week, I believe, uh, we are not actually reading this week's Parsha, right? We're not reading the Parsha that would come after last week's Parsha. We're actually reading parts of the Torah that have to do with the Exodus, which makes a whole lot of sense because we're in Pesach. So that which we've read throughout Minyan this past week and also what we will be reading on Shabbat is specifically related to Passover. And we're very lucky because on Shabbat, that is the Song of the Sea. And for those of you who are with me for Midrasha yesterday, part of what I taught about is how when we do the Song of the Sea, when we read, I should say, the Song of the Sea earlier on in the year, it's very nice, but it's like December or January, right? And it's in the middle of kind of not the season that you would expect uh, to be reading the Song of the Sea. So when we get to this point, when we're reading it on Pesach, it has a whole different connotation almost, or at least feel to it, that you would be reading the Song of the Sea when you're also experiencing the story of Exodus. Um, So I personally like that we read it now. It's nice when we read it earlier on in the year, but I really like that it comes back at this point in our uh, in our system. So we're not going to do as much kind of uh, recap as Rabbi Shapiro typically does over the parsha because it's not um, it's not. Give me one second. This is going to be the wrong screen, but I'll move to Safari. Yeah, sorry. This is a baby naming I'm working on. Um, <laughs> um, so wh- I'll do a little bit of a recap just kind of generally, um, but but know that you know the story. You know what's going on here before we get to the Song of the Sea. Okay, so we're going to start chapter 13, verse 17. Um, and... This is the beginning of Parshat Beshalach. Again, like this is, um, huh, checks out. It was bread. Um, <laughs> um, so this is, uh, this is the beginning of this Parsha that, again, you've already read in the, the world's system of Torah reading. Um, so we're going to kind of gloss through these pieces a little bit. But basically, Pharaoh let the people go. Hooray, we got out. Fantastic. Um, and then most, I can't look at Brett while I teach because I'm just going to laugh. Okay. Um, so the, um, the people go out, we talk about them, um, going through all these different places. Then we have this pillar of cloud. Again, we're not going to be talking about any of these things, but just to remind you that these things happened, um, before they got to the sea. Um, and all of this then prepares us for this moment where they're going to actually approach the sea before the song of the sea. So um, they, the, the Israelites are told to go back, right, and make sure that they're kind of ready for this experience. Then Pharaoh's heart, again, is going to be stiffened, um, and he's going to go after the people. They God is now telling them, Moshe at least, that they got that Pharaoh, sorry, is going to go after them with all of Pharaoh's people. Um, then Pharaoh's told that the people have fled. Pharaoh, as God had predicted slash knew, goes after um, the people, and all of them then go forward. 
both Egyptians and B'nai Israel in front of the Egyptians. Um, they chase them. I feel like I should have a movie playing in the background of this. Uh, Pharaoh gets very close. We don't really know how close. Um, I'm trying to do a lot of text in a very short period of time. Um, God makes sure that the Egyptians also know that God is all-powerful because, as we know, God is going to, in a moment, split the sea, and that's going to be a very large moment uh, uh, in the life of both B'nai Israel and also the Egyptians. So God, a few verses before this, talks about how great uh, God is and to let the Egyptians know that that's the case. So here is kind of where the the... Song of the Sea piece really begins because Moses puts his arm out over the sea. The sea splits. There was this very strong wind. Um, by the way, when I ask for Kushiot, you can kind of start from this place. So feel free to pay attention uh, to specific words or specific concepts. The waters split. The Israelites obviously go through on dry ground. Um, and there's this is one of my favorite pieces of text. Uh, the waters form a wall on either side. The Egyptians then go after them. As we know, the Egyptians are killed by the water going uh, going kind of back to normal as opposed to being these walls around them. Um, the chariots are locked right there. Wheels are locked. They can't move. Moshe makes it through. Uh, the Egyptians do not. And then we get to the Song of the Sea. So I'm going to open it up for Kushiot. I know for those of you who don't typically join us, I'll kind of explain what we normally do and then I'll explain what we are going to do today. So typically we would choose one or two verses. I just went through many, many verses. Uh, and then we would have participants ask Kushiot about these different verses um, that we had presented. Because I presented so many verses, um, I'm going to ask that your kushiot be kind of conceptual rather than specific to, uh, to, to phrases, since I gave you kind of a lot of phrases and a lot of verses to, to work with here. Um, so kushiot, anybody have any questions that they would like to ask, whether about the preparation for the Song of the Sea or the Song of the Sea itself? Um. The whole pillar of cloud thing I've always found to be a very sort of mysterious thing. Like, what is that? And God's presence seems to be very tied to where that pillar of cloud is, right? When the when God's presence moves from the front to the back, so does the pillar. So just what is that whole pillar of cloud thing? Yeah, great. It's a great question. Um, it's, <laughs> it is one of those things that that we know exists and we know kind of follows the people around, but the ways in which it shows up once in a while is is really almost confusing, right? Because why is it there? Is it a cloud? Is it fire? What's happening? Is it is it that the people are protected when it's there or when it's not there? It becomes very confusing the different ways that it's used. Um, so though I have no like exact response to the question that you asked, it is... It is interesting to note that it somehow is showing us God's presence by there being that pillar of cloud and that there is some kind of protection aspect. Um, thank you, Jackie. There's some kind of protection aspect around what um, what the people are feeling and experiencing when that cloud is present. Let me just look in the chat. 
Yeah, we see God people in other ways. God kill people, excuse me, in other ways, i.e. swallowing them. Any comment on why not a quick painless on earth death? Maybe lightning versus this long drowning. Why include the suffering? That's a great, great question. And one of the reasons that I actually personally struggle a lot with the Song of the Sea, um, specifically because the tunes that we put to the Song of the Sea are often like very jovial and very excited. And yet the things that we are saying, yes, it's lovely that we made it to the other side, but we're also praising the fact that a bunch of people died. And that's really tough. And that's tough theology. And that's tough just in terms of thinking of how we can be glad that we are safe and we are protected, but that our enemy is not. Um, I told this to my Midrashah group yesterday. A rabbinical student, when I was in rabbinical school, introduced this tune to Ziegler for Oz Yashir that I have never liked. Um, and I love this person a lot, one of my very close friends. And yesterday, a different person in Daily Minion sang this tune, and I turned to Rabbi Klinkfeld and I said, I just... I just don't know why this tune is like still in use. Like, I, I don't know why people still sing this tune. Because it's like a drinking song. It's, Az Yashir Moshe, Yisrael. And I just, I don't get it. Like, I, I don't know why that song is still there. So anyone listening on the podcast or anybody here, you will never hear me sing that. Um, but it goes to the to the point of this question. Yes. Um it goes to the point of this question that is, uh, that is, you know, why aren't we paying more attention to the fact that there was real suffering? And why is that not um, uh, more focused on as part of what we are saying every single day as Az Yashir? It's a really wonderful question that I'm not God, so I don't have, <laughs> I don't have an answer, but it's a great question. Denise. You can for sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I was just cutting celery. Um, okay, so so in terms of the hardship of, you know, people died and it's horrible and everything, and I'm generally um, kind of a softy and also squeamish, so I, I get that sentiment. At the same time, there's a part of me that says, like, they were about to kill us. They were coming to kill us, you know, and, and I don't know. So although I don't necessarily want to dwell on all the visuals of it or think about what it felt like, just in, I don't know, in my heart, I don't really cry for people who suffered when they were trying to kill me, you know. Sure. And, and one of the, if, if I, so I'm more excited to learn from my friends and colleagues. But if I, if I get to one of the midrash that I brought, the um, there's actually a lot around this that I believe Rashi begins with talking about how you you don't have to be sad because your enemy has died, but you should not celebrate it. And and that there's a very different a very different aspect to how you deal with someone who who has hurt you and who has oppressed you in this case um you know dying or having any kind of pain 
And yet, this Song of the Sea, I mean, if you go through the Song of the Sea, many of the lines talk about how wonderful it was that they were swallowed up and how great it was that they were hurled into the ocean. And and that's a little bit too celebratory for God and also for the rabbis to swallow. So similar to what yeah. Yeah, Elon. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Elon. Yeah, by the way, I'm not I'm not sure. In fact, I'm, my interpretation is that this is not at all inconsistent with God as we know God up to this point, which is, you know, here's the payoff for all your fealty to me and all the blessings and all the gratuitous thank yous that you thought you were giving me. And now I'm going to whack the Egyptians. And by the way, uh, there's a subtle message in this to you Israelites that if you piss me off, I can do this to you too, right? So I, I don't find it is troubling, but it's not inconsistent, right? There's no, there's nothing preceding this that says, "Wow, this is so out of character." For God, I can't believe it. No, this is completely in character. Totally. And the only thing I would add to that is that God is not the one who's saying to Moses, "Sing a song about how great it was that I hurled these people into the sea." You're right that. They were hurled into the sea by God, and that is very in character. But Moshe and really Miriam are the ones who decide they're going to sing a song about it. Right, but I would argue that what they've been taught up until this point is that you must thank God, right? You must acknowledge God. Yeah. You just can't let it go, hey, did it, okay, no big deal, right? This is all part of their perception of what God needs, Right. So, yes, you're right. God did not say to them, say, he, but God did not have to say it. Right. Uh-huh. They, yeah. they understood that that's what they had to do. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a great that's a great point. And to to the first thing you said, very in character. Right. That's what they knew to do. So that's how they that's how they express themselves. OK, very quickly, Joanna and then Rebecca, and then we're going to go to our teachers. Two things. Um, so. Talking about like God's reaction to the song and then even like our own later on, isn't the reason that we do only a half halal on Pesach is because we have a little bit of that restrained joy because we restrain our joy a little bit because, you know, to keep in mind that in order for us to be redeemed, Egyptians suffered and were killed. And um and is it, I think that there's a midrash that God held back the angels from joining in singing, that the angels wanted to sing as well, and God held them back. That's the same midrash I quoted, yeah. And um, the other thing I was thinking about, to just jump quickly to another holiday, growing up in a Sephardic, in a Sephardic family, when we sat down for Rosh Hashanah dinner, we eat a whole variety of foods. It's almost like a mini Seder before the meal. And there were some that have come into like Ashkenazic practice, like having fish and pomegranates and apples. And what strikes me is the ones that have fallen into more common use are the ones that have like the beautiful blessings to say about them. And there's a whole bunch of foods that we eat that in one way or another, the blessing for them is may our enemies be cut down. And I've always like, I loved eating the foods, but like it's made me uncomfortable to say that kind of thing. Like that's what I want to go into the new year with, except 
the Rosh Hashanah that fell right after 9-11, it made a lot of sense to me because there was something empowering about that Rosh Hashanah, being able to give voice to what we were all feeling, even if, you know, it wasn't really going to affect anything, even if it wasn't really maybe two weeks, a month, a year later, what we wanted. But in that moment, in that experience, there was something to voicing that thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Rebecca. Uh, I sort of been echoing what Joanna just said and a few other things, but um, first of all, I think, that we're not only talking about um, people that chased us and were going to kill us, but these were people that enslaved us for a few, you know, for a while. <laughs> and I think the whole um, sort of the magic or the, the 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 miracle of getting out and actually seeing them go down and not us, um, I think that gives you the the, the right to kind of <laughs> to, to be joyful. Um, the other thing is a person that grew up in Israel and went through a couple of wars. Um, I think that when you're in that situation, uh, I think, you know, it takes, it takes a certain distance to be able to develop the feeling, oh, I should be sad when my enemy dies. I think when you're in it, it's a strong feeling, just like Joanna said about 9-11. So yeah. it just went through trauma. Yeah, I I don't think the the rabbis nor the midrash are speaking to you needing to feel remorse or needing to feel, um, you know, any type of sadness really for the people who have died. More so, not outwardly celebrating. So there are peoples and countries in this world that someone who they despise is killed or dies and they have a party and we see it on the news and we see it in the way that they fill the streets and give candy to their children and all of those kinds of things. That's, that's the behavior that the rabbis were speaking to in this moment as being not, not okay, not something that we should do. And I a hundred percent agree with you that when you are in something enemy, someone you just don't like, right? If they, if something goes badly for them, there is a part of us as humans that are glad for that because we didn't want them to see anything good come their way. And now something bad coming their way is, it is natural for us to feel good about that. God and, and the God in the Midrash, I'll say, is not, is not saying that that's not okay. God's just saying, don't make it a party. Don't make it a simcha. Just allow it to be what it is. Feel the way you're going to feel and, and be glad for your own freedom. So I think, I think we're all saying the same, the same thing. And you're a hundred percent correct that being in it, it's also very hard to not, uh, you know, to have that perspective. Um, and it's easier for me in 2021 to say they should have had a little bit more Rahmanis, you know, on the, on the Egyptians. But, okay. Um, there are two lovely people here who are not typically here. <laughs> Red Copen just waved. Um, so these are both people who are currently at Ziegler. So Brett and Jackie. Brett came in as Zoom 5. We had a whole conversation about who you might be. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, 
Brett and I actually went to school together, which was lovely, and uh, is a wonderful friend, and is will be a rabbi very soon, uh, and will be getting married soon thereafter. So two two Mazaltos coming his way. Um, actually, I actually have no idea if he's getting married soon thereafter, but he's engaged, so I assume marriage is happening after that. Um, and J Jackie has, you've probably seen Jackie a lot in our community. Jackie has joined us in person when that was a thing, uh, and also online, both for davening and for learning, and is in her second year at Ziegler. Uh, and is just a wonderful person in her own right and a, a very important part of the Temple Beth Am community. So we are glad to have all of you here. I'm going to spotlight us um, so that you can kind of see us as in conversation with one another, though you'll have to be in gallery view for that to happen. So if you're not, I mean, sorry, speaker view for that to happen. So if you're not, you might want to be. Um, Brett, I hear you're going first. Sure. Okay. Um, what? I'm happy to go first. Fantastic. Well, you're the closest to being a rabbi, so you should go first. Um, uh, not that it means anything, but um, so what's, what they're going to do is exactly what Rabbi Shapiro and I do. They knew that we were going to be talking about Shirat Hayam. I asked them to prepare, bring, teach um, something that they were excited about along the lines of this Torah text, and then we can be in communication and conversation and communication about it. And then if you have questions or thoughts that you want to add to it as well, um, feel free to do so. So I just wanted to give you the format and I will let Brett do some teaching. Thank you very much, Rabbi Schatz. Uh, it's really great to be here. Um, yeah, and, and I'll just say too, in a, in a pre-COVID world, Beth um, uh, has been a very, very important part of my my journey through the rabbinate in LA. Um, and I, I love the Bethlehem community. So to have the opportunity to be here and teach is really, really wonderful. Um, and I just want to say, I'm really happy, Rebecca, that you decided to give us the entire overview first, because I, I wanted to hearken back um, to the actual Yitziat Mitzrayim and start there. Right. Uh, because oftentimes in the Torah, one of the amazing aspects of the Torah is that structurally big sections of text really work together to tell a larger story. So I want to point um, something out that I've noticed in the text. And then after that, open it up. Um, I also do enjoy being interrupted. So if anybody has questions at any point, please feel free to just jump in. Um, but where this journey technically begins at the beginning of Parshat Bishalach is we have this interesting description of God leading the people but leading, but sort of manipulating the journey in a way. And the line in the beginning says, um, I'll just read it in Hebrew first. It says, paro et ta'am. So when they were sent, so when the nation was sent out, Elohim derech eretz God didn't want to send them by the way of the plishdim of the Philistines, didn't want them to go in that direction. Ki karov hu, ki amar Elohim, pen yinachem ha'am bira'atem milchama b'shavu Mitzrayim. Mitzrayimah. God does not want to send them towards the land, towards the path of the Philistines, because God is nervous that if they see a war coming, if there's some sort of imminent threat of war, that outside of God's jurisdiction, the, Am will, the nation will literally turn around and go back to Egypt. And so we don't get the sense here 
that the nation is in any sense under any sort of control or threat to follow God from the beginning. It's, it's a, it's a free will journey that the, that the, the Israelites are being left left to their own devices in a sense, though they are being led. But at any point in the journey, it's up to them if they actually want to turn around and go back to Egypt. And so there's a lot at stake here. And while they're on this journey and we, somebody, we, we've already discussed this a little bit, this miraculous image appears where they, the Israelites are being led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. But what we understand in the beginning of the story is that the people are being led completely by God. Their act, their path is totally dependent on God. God wanted them to go in a certain direction and not the, the easy direction. So they went. And now there's this miraculous vision of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that's leading them. And I don't know if there are any um, Lord of the Rings fans out there, but I've always imagined that the Israelite camp literally looks like Sauron's camp. Uh, in the in the movie, because they do literally have a pillar of fire coming out from the center of the camp, and that pillar of fire is what's leading them. Uh, and I know that Tolkien was definitely a deep reader of the Bible, so I'm sure the influence is completely there. But that's always the image I have in mind: is this terrifyingly large group of people being led by this pillar of divine fire in the middle. But the journey that they seem to take is one where God is leading them in the beginning, but there it's clear throughout the story that God is actually trying to give that power away. God actually wants them to lead themselves. And the culmination of that is when Pharaoh regrets that he sent the Israelites out, that he basically sent his economy away from the empire, chases them down. And then B'nai Israel is standing at the sea. They don't know what to do. And they start screaming to Moses and they say, why did you take it? Why did you do this to us? Why did you take us out of the land to kill us? And God at that point says to Moses, because Moses is, is screaming at God and saying, you need to help us do something. God says, why are you screaming at me? Why are you calling on me? Did you not just perform nine plagues on your own, granted, because the death of the firstborn was really just God doing that. But did you not, did you and Aaron not just perform nine other plagues where you put out your staff and something miraculous happened? You know what to do. You don't, you don't need to keep relying on me. I've taught you how to do this already. We've been doing this. We've been working together for a year at this point. It's kind of what he's saying. It's kind of like when a supervisor is empowering an intern to just start taking responsibility and not checking in with email, you know, for every single decision. That's what's happening. Why are you screaming at me? Um, You know what to do. Take your staff and something miraculous will happen. Moses does this. The seas split. And, you know, we know the rest of the story. The rest is history, as, as we just discussed. And a really interesting line at the beginning of Shirat Hayam, um, and for those of us who daven shachari, we say this every morning, Vayar Yisrael et hayad hagdola asher asa Adonai b'Mitzrayim, Vayiru ha'am et Adonai, Vayaminu ba'Adonai u'Moshe abdo. So, and Israel saw this great, the great hand, like the magnanimous power that God just performed against the Egyptians. And the nation of Israel saw God, and then here's the key word, and they believed, they had faith in God, and in Moses, his servant. We, we now see this crazy arc from the beginning of the story where God is scared that if they do the wrong, that if, he, if God does something wrong managerially, the people will turn back and they'll go to Egypt. 
And now what's motivating the people to go forward? It's this idea of emunah. They just saw this great miracle. They just saw this amazing deliverance. God literally parted the waters, brought them through, and then drowned their captors. And now instead of God being worried that the people are going to turn around, the people have something that they didn't have before. And what they have now is emuna. They have this idea of belief. They have this, they know for certain that God is a reliable God that God will protect them, that God is there for them, just as God promised. But now they really actually believe that. And what's the result of this is we get the famous Shirat Hayam. We get the Song of the Sea. And for me, when I see this progression of God leading the people in the beginning to God saying directly to Moses, why are you screaming at me? You know what to do. Take, take the staff and split the sea apart to then the Israelites and Mo- led by Moses singing the song, what we see is this gradual transfer of power. We see that God was leading them solely in the beginning. We see that there's this transitional, that they have to have this conversation in the middle where God says, Moshe, you know what to do, do it. And now Moshe on his own is going to lead the people in song. And for me, that's that, that message is so beautiful because it means that the culmination of power, what it really means to lead essentially manifests itself in leading others in song and that's what's happening here and that's and and for me like that that's a very very beautiful message and something i want to add to that is i said in the beginning the thing about the lord of the rings and the fire and the cloud and those pillars what we have at the very beginning of the song is moshe leading the people and it says famously it says um as as or sorry the first line is ashira ladonai kiga oga'a I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to God. And then at the very end of the song, we have Miriam. And it says, uh, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, takes the tambrel, and she literally shepherds the women who also take their instruments, and they start singing. And then what does Miriam say? She says, Shiru Ladonai. She says, let us sing to God. And there's this beautiful transition from Moses saying, I will sing to God, to then Miriam at the end saying, let us sing to God. You're going from that individual leader to the collective. And what I want to suggest here is that the reason why Moshe is coming at the beginning of the song and then Miriam is coming at the end of the song is that they're meant to be this personification of those pillars of cloud and fire, that they no longer need some sort of divine miracle to lead them. We literally have one leader at the back of the line and the other leader at the front of the line. And these are the two who are going to take on that role of leadership and they're going to lead the people. And so not only do we have this transfer of power from God to Moshe and then ultimately to the collective, to the people, we, we see this other transition of you will no longer need a divine sign, some amazing wonder in order to, to make you follow us. You have Amuna, you have this idea of faith. And not only that, you have, two, you have at least two leaders who are going to stand in place of the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and they're going to lead you. And I think for, you know, if we want to look at the text psychologically, both psychologically and theologically, it's a very beautiful transition to say when you're younger, sometimes we need something amazing. We need to be shocked or awed by some beautiful vision in order to, in order to be compelled to follow something or to at least look deeper into it. 
And then at a certain level, we develop this idea of faith or amuna. And then at that point, it's not that we're on autopilot. It's just, we don't need that external signal. We, we have it within ourselves. Um, and, and for me, that, that's what I see happening um, at the Shirat Hayam. So I wanted to sort of, I wanted to share that idea with all of you. Um, and Rebecca, I don't know, do you want to open it up for responses now or do you want to wait till after Jackie? Um, that was beautiful. <laughs> really love that idea. Um, why don't we, does anybody have anything burning that you want to say or ask Brett um, before we move to Jackie? I just want to make sure that Jackie also has time before we ask questions. So I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole. Um, anybody? Okay. So if you have a question, feel free to put it in the chat. We will come back to questions that you'll be able to ask or comments that you'll be able to say slash ask of um, Brett and also of Jackie. But let's hear a little bit of Torah from Jackie. And then um, I feel like I'm, I feel like there's like a, it's like a game show and someone's going <laughs> to no squares. Everybody's a winner at Mahanerama. Um, okay. So, uh, Jackie, go ahead. So in like perfect things. So I did a little bit of a deep dive into Miriam. So I thought I liked Miriam. And then I have decided in the last number of days that like, she's my, like, she's my person. And she's now the person I identify with most in the Torah. Uh, so that was a fun deep dive. So it's interesting. So something that's really interesting as Brett pointed out is that she is Miriam. She's introduced as Miriam Hanaviah, the sister of Aaron. And so there are a couple of commentators that ask, like, why does it talk about her as the sister of Aaron, which was kind of interesting. But then it asks, like, what is this that she's a prophetess? Like, we haven't seen her prophet. Like, we know that Moses is a prophet. Moses talks to God. Um, what's the deal? So there's two, I found two different answers that I think are really interesting. Um, so in, so it's talked about in Masachet Megillah in the Talmud, um, and I'm just going to read it in the English from the translation. Um, Rav Nachman said that Rav said, for she prophetized when she was the sister of Aaron. So before Moses existed. Um, and she would say, my mother is destined to bear a son who will deliver the Jewish people to salvation. And at the time when Moses was born, the entire house was filled with light. And her father stood and kissed her on her head and said to her, my daughter, your prophecy has been fulfilled. So it turns out that like Miriam, who in some ways outside of this moment can be seen sort of as a side character, like really up until now, it's Moses and Aaron and Moses and Aaron and Moses and Aaron. All of a sudden we get this title and it turns out she's been kind of a big deal all along, probably a little bit longer than her brothers, um, which I think is really fun. And it's also why they identify her with, with Aaron because she was the, a prophet before Moses even existed. Um, so, but then this, so Chizkuni on this brings something else that I really liked. And this was like the moment for me. Um, so he says, Miriam, the prophetess, the word prophetess is used here to describe Miriam's extraordinary ability to use words to express her feelings. According to Rashbam, the word is also used as describing someone who preaches to people to behave morally and ethically correctly. Compare when God told Moses that his brother Aaron would be a Neviah, which can hardly mean your prophet, as Moses outclassed him in, his de in that department. 
And so he brings this proof that that the reason that Aaron is Moses' prophet, this like possessive ending, is because Aaron clearly told Moses how to behave well, as big brothers should, I assume. That's what they tell me. Um, And so, but I think this is really interesting that here it is that we see Miriam and I think often we associate being a good communicator with like femininity and whether or not it is or is not, it's often seen as a feminine trait. And here is this very thing that's considered a feminine trait. This is what launches her and makes her into a prophetess, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, And so I absolutely love this moment in the story. Um, and Rabbi Chat's already heard me talk about this week, but I'm going to say it again because it feels, I love it. And Paula just brought it up. Um, and if anybody heard Rabbi Matt Shapiro actually spoke last week about like radical hope and hope and optimism and what does that mean? Um, so Miriam, we see at the end of this story dances and she brought her timbrels. And, the, and to me, it's such a powerful moment um, in the story where they're fleeing Egypt, we eat this matzah because they had no time to bake bread. And what did they do as this act? They took their tambourines with them. And I think for me, that's so powerful of in this act of, I call, I'll call it radical hope. They like took it with them knowing there was something to dance for on the other side. Um, and I think that's been really powerful for me in this moment, but in general, like what's, what does it look like to embody and, and and do out radical hope um, instead of just thinking about it and it's to like take the tambourine off the wall and like take it with you as all of this stuff is happening. Um, and Mary, Miriam leads in that. And I think she's, she's kind of cool. So. So. Great. Thank you. That was an, uh, as a great way of bringing Miriam, like you worked very well together though, <laughs> without even knowing it, a great way of bringing Miriam's, um, voice and Miriam's kind of contributions, as you said, from the really from the beginning um, into the rest of this story. Um, one, one piece of, um, I'll just add on to, to what Jackie just shared, because I just learned this this week. One um, in, I think it was in Shmot Rabbah, I could be wrong. Um, there's there's this whole explanation about how when B'nai Israel sings a song, it's always Shira. It's never Shir. So like Shir Hamalot was not sung by B'nai Israel. So that's a Shir. But when anything is sung by all of B'nai Israel, it's it's called Shira because of the feminine um, experience of giving birth. And they equate this idea of having having there be challenge and um, and pain, right? There, there being something on one side of an experience that then leads to a beautiful celebratory tambourine-filled experience. And that in that way, every time B'nai Israel sings a song, it must be called a shira because for the reasons that Miriam so beautifully showed us, um, but also for all the reasons that the rabbis are equating this to, to female experience of birth, that we need as a people to feel as though even if something was difficult, there should be a shira on the other end. So I love that. Uh, I love that idea in general, and I love that it gets to be something that that Miriam brought to us. Um Okay, I am not going to share a piece of Torah because I want us to be able to have 15 minutes, an additional, I guess I just shared one, an additional piece of Torah. Um, 
because we only have 15 minutes left and I want people to be able to ask questions and make comments. So raise your hand. I cannot see you all because I'm not in gallery view. So raise your hand if you have anything you want to share um, or put in the chat and I will read it out loud. Brett. Yeah, I, um, Jackie, one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me was taking their instruments because they, they knew that they were going to have something to sing about on the other side. I, I think that's a really, really beautiful idea. And what it immediately took me back to is I, I actually just learned this. Um, in my family, one of the family heirlooms that we have is my great grandmother, when she came from Europe, literally brought her copper gefilte fish pot with her and a wooden hocking bowl. It's like to hock the fish inside the bowl. And my grandmother still uses the same pot and bowl to make a filter fish. And they used this last week. And, you know, you're thinking about these people who are leaving this world that they know and going to this new world. They all could probably bring one suitcase, one duffel with them. And of all the things that they could bring, she decided to bring her cooking utensils, her pot and this bowl. And it's just this idea that when they got to the other side, they didn't know what was going to be there, but there was going to be family to cook for and so of all the things she could have brought, that's what she brought. Uh, and to me, like that's such a beautiful tie-in. I never thought of it that way, of why did these people have these instruments in the desert? They had to leave really quickly, and they all brought their timbrels and their drums. And it's because like they, they still had to live when they got to the other side, and that was an essential thing for them. So, so thank you for making uh, that connection. That's really wonderful. I love that. It's also interesting that both your grandmother and Miriam... <laughs> Um, who I'm sure knew each other at some point, um, that I'm sure it was also scary to not know what was on the other side, right? They were leaving something that was known. It was not a great experience for them, but it was at least known. And to leave that and go to the other side, they didn't know it was going to be on the other side. Your grandmother didn't know what was going to be in this new world. And to bring a piece of the quote old world, um, knowing that it could be of use, that, that that's just, that's hope right there, right? That brings a lot of that hope, um, into whatever situation you might find yourself in. Any other thoughts or comments or questions or additions? Yeah, Joanna. I'm just thinking about, you know, exploring in my mind a little bit this idea that you brought up, Jackie, of Miriam as a prophet and kind of comparing and contrasting her a little bit to Moses and his leadership. And I think of, at least in my mind, Moses as sort of a very up there leader and like the people are down here where Miriam is much more feels much more among the people. And we kind of know that because later on, Moses is told, in fact, you've got to get 70 people to help you. You're too much, you know, there's too much of a gap between you and the people. And I'm looking at this word um, um, where it says that um, Miriam chanted um, with them or to them, but that root also means answered, right? So that like she was sensitive to, what they were saying and feeling and was able to respond, was able to answer to that. And when I think about the, the Exodus story, I think perhaps there's no figure in the Exodus story that if you put that person in the center, 
has more spokes representing different relationships going out from that than Miriam. She had, uh, you know, um, a rather interesting relationship with her parents, at least according to the Midrash, including a couple that were told here of how she relates in response to her parents with the midwives, with the daughter, um, with Bat Potiphar. Um, so all these, you know, with Moses and Aaron, with the women in particular, with all of B'nai Yisrael. So like there are all these spokes, relational spokes emanating from her that I don't think any other character in the story has, you know, relationships going in so many different directions. And she seems to have this intuitive sense about people that perhaps feeds into her prophecy. Jackie, did you want to say anything? You don't have to. Oh, I mean, yes. Yes to that. <laughs> I think, you know, I think that's really what, really what Chris Cooney is talking about, is that it's about her ability to use words, and I think relational stuff fits right in there. Yeah, Rebecca. Um, so first, I really enjoyed both. <laughs> it was very... Um, I'll just my reactions to both to both are a little different, but um, in terms of Miriam and the singing, it kind of reminded me of stories about the Holocaust, where someone takes their violin with them along, you know, to the camps, and 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 it's usually someone who is a you know that music is their life. And when I read the stories in the Bible, I never think of the Israelites as being this you know singing people. And so it's really interesting to think that there was that layer there because obviously they did get up and took those musical instruments with them. So it sort of is a surprising way to think about it. Um, and I, I thought that the um, description that Brett gave of sort of coming of age of an employee or of a child, um, it lends itself to really thinking about the whole story from there through the how disappointing the golden calf is in light of this. And then, and even of the, you know, the main boss, Moses, not actually entering Israel, the promised land, with the rest of uh, the uh, people, the employees, children, whatever way you want. So it kind of really, um, it's a thread that you could pull throughout the story that really works. It's really nice. Now I'm just thinking about all of us as employees of God. Like that's just gonna <laughs> stick with me. You know, Dale, Dale Schatz, who is one of Brett's favorite humans on the planet. Like literally top five. Yeah. <laughs> I support it. Yeah. Definitely above Rebecca Schatz. Dale yeah. Schatz. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, well that's nice. Um Dale Schatz has been doing this little chant with the preschoolers that is very cute. If you hear it alone, it's like a little bit weird and disturbing. But if you do it with a room full of preschoolers, he sings Avadim Hayinu. And then he plays his guitar in his Dale way. And he goes, I don't want to work for Pharaoh. I want to work for, and all the little kids go, God! I want to work for Pharaoh. I want to work for God. Anyway, so that's what this made me think of. Um, but yeah. yeah that's the Shots family version of that that appeared in our email somewhere. Oh, I did not There's- know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but that's lovely. 
Um, wow. I, okay, now I'm distracted by why. Um, that I, I I do think there is there is something um, all chance aside. I do think there's something about the way that we pray, where that we feel that way, right? And halacha, and like the way that we that that we conduct ourselves. Even going back to what Brett shared, um, you know, when you have when you're an intern and you're working for someone and you finally get to a spot. I remember when I was a Roche dot Ramah, I went to Joe Manashi, who was the executive director, and I said. I have a question. I don't remember what the question was. I have a question. And I sa- he said back to me, I hired you to be a Roche, so you didn't have to ask me these questions. <laughs> but you need to be told that at a certain point because you still think you're working under somebody, and, and you are, but that doesn't mean that every question needs to be answered by them. And I think our relationship with God at times, and if you choose to have it be this way, is much like that, that you that you feel as though there is something that you are accountable to, but not necessarily every action that you are doing is because you believe that God is watching over you. Rather, you just feel accountable to that kind of, um, that kind of relationship. Elon, did you have your hand up or did I make that up? No? Okay. Um, any, I, Joanna, I see your hand. I just want to see if anybody new wants to share something and then I'll call on you if not. Anybody else have anything? Okay. Um, Joanna, give me one second because we have a few extra minutes and I just really love this piece of Torah. I'm going to, I'm going to share this and then I'll I'll call on you to have the last word. Um, so this is, um, hold on one second. I just have to move you all out of the way so I can actually read this. Uh, okay. So, um, this is, I was working with a bat mitzvah student who was not interested in writing a drash, and so she made really beautiful pieces of art uh, out of different midrashim that we read together. And this is both, this is the, the piece from the actual Torah, then the midrash, and then her, um, her interpretation of the art that she made. You don't have to read it, I just wanted you to know why it said that on your screen. So the, the name of her art piece was Michamocha. Anyway, so this is the first line of the Song of the Sea, as Yeshir Moshe of Israel. And what that literally means is, and then Moses sang, and the children of Israel, this song. Right? So um, what does that mean? That makes no sense in English. And what does that mean in terms of the, the way in which it's written Moses sang it and B'nai Israel. So what are we what are we answering here? The Lubavitcher Rebbe, you know, someone someone who I look up to in so many ways, um, says Rabbi Eliezer interprets the Torah's description of Israel's song to say that they did not merely affirm Moses's song with a refrain, but repeated his words themselves. Each individual Jew internalized Moses' words so that they could become the expression of their own understanding and feeling. The very same words assumed hundreds of thousands of nuances of meaning as they were absorbed by each of the minds and articulated by each of the mouths of the people of Israel. Moses started them off with the first words of song so as to stimulate their deepest experience of the miracle, with the result that each of them sang the entire song on their own. And both of the teachings that we heard from Jackie and from Brett really made me think of this in an even stronger way, that there's this idea that as Brett was sharing, that that the, 
the passing on of leadership not only was done through Moses and Miriam taking something on, but also seeped into the way in which just the people around them were singing and speaking, um, and that it was done in a celebratory way, such as song. Um, and as a person who sings myself and, and went to school for conducting, this is something that actually really speaks to the way that you want to create music. You don't want to create music by standing in front of people or playing in front of people and having them either experience nothing or not be inspired to do that as well, but rather to hear a song, to see an instrument, and then want to do it in your own way. Sing it in your own way, play it in your own way, um, find more ways to hear that type of song or instrument in your own time and way. So I I also think this is the reason that we do Azia Shir every morning, um, because it is now for us to do in our own individual ways and through our own individual mouths um, uh, and therefore interpretations into, into the lives that we are living, even though we're not every morning at the precipice of the sea. So I just wanted to share that as, as like a, not exact summation, but as a nice way of bringing those two pieces of, of learning together. Um, Joanna, and then we will close. Oh, wait, Rabbi Schatz? Oh, yeah. Could, could I do the shout out? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have Joanna ask her a question or whatever, and then you can go. Okay. This just goes back to when you were talking about um, Moradel and what he would do with the preschool kids, because that so jumped out at me, I think kind of for the first time when we did the first pass through the text, and we got to that line that they... Um, that they, that B'nai Yisrael, had faith in God and in his servant Moses. Because at this point, don't we know who Moses is? Why do we need like that descriptor, his servant, right? Which in Hebrew is Eved, right? So to me, this is a very transformative moment all of a sudden, because this is the moment when we go from being servants of Paro to servants of God. And that's why the word is there to emphasize my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's exactly correct. Yeah. Um, okay, Denise, do your little shout out and then I'll wrap up. Okay, so a week from this coming Saturday night, so April 10th, Sisterhood is sponsoring a shul-wide co-ed trivia night. It's going to be super fun. $9 per person, $18 per couple. And it's going to be with teams so you can either when you RSVP write down people who you want to be with or a team will be assigned to you so keep an eye out for those emails and it's also going to be or it is actually already on the shul website if you click on getting involved and then click on sisterhood thank you to me um yeah anytime um i I really just wanted to say, this has nothing to do with the teaching, but I, but I do want to say that there is something so wonderful about getting to do this class every week throughout Rabbi Shapiro, because we get to come and share Torah and have fun with one another, and getting to do that with two people who I have so much fun just being a human with, um, but, but also have such, uh, 
such respect for in terms of the Torah that you have to teach, uh, and such a deep love of friendship for both of you. This was this was really really special, and I will I will kind of tie it back into the Torah by saying, I think that when we are able to listen to Az Yashir tomorrow, tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow um, in the Torah reading. I, I hope that you're all able to recognize that there are moments in which in our lives there are great challenges that are both behind us and in front of us, and that the real miracle is taking that foot forward. And that one of the ways in which our rabbis talk about the people being able to take that first foot forward was the fact that they had community and friends around them. And so... I am lucky enough this morning to be surrounded by two really lovely friends to share with you and to share their Torah. And I hope that each of you tomorrow when you hear the Torah being read, that you can think of the ways in which you are surrounded, whether it's in community or by family or by friends, who are helping you through these moments that really have been year long of having those challenges behind you and having challenges in front of us. We don't know what that future is gonna look like on the other side. But as both uh, Brett and Jackie brought for us this mor- morning, um, I was about to say, is this evening or this morning? It's been a long week. Uh, but this morning that we do have the ability to celebrate something and that we do have, that that is the next step in this journey, that there is something to celebrate, there is something to move forward in doing, um, and that we just have to figure out the best way for us to do that and the best people who are going to be around us in doing that. So... Thank you all for being here. Mo'adim simcha, Shabbat Shalom, all of the things. Um, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, have a wonderful Shabbat and end of Pesach, just so that you know what's happening uh, in the world of Temple Betham. Tomorrow morning, 9.30 a.m. services, as well as Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. services, both are happening on the field, but are also being Zoomed and live streamed. So any which way you would like to join us, you are welcome to do so. Uh, and we will see you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Betham, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Betham, Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.